one of the surgeons there was going to do a thyroidectomy. And uh, Brian Dwyer, who was a great innovator at the time, said yes, he would be happy to give the anaesthetic and that he would intubate the patient. And the surgeon reacted like nobody's was. He didn't want him intubating the patient at all. Can you imagine not intubating a patient who is about to undergo a total thyroidectomy? Do you wonder how else you could give this anaesthetic? And what else was different about the practice of anaesthesia in the not-too-distant past? Thank you for listening to the Australian Anaesthesia Podcast, where we talk about all things relevant to anaesthesia in Australia. And in this episode, we are going to take a peek into clinical anaesthesia in the 1960s. I'm your host, Dr. Susie New from the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, otherwise known as the ASA. I'm chatting here with past president of the ASA, Dr. Donald Maxwell, who obtained his fellowship as a specialist anaesthetist in 1960. For those who listen regularly, I'm flagging that we're shaking things up a bit and that this is part one of two episodes. In this first part, Don and I chat about what the practice of anaesthesia was like here in Australia and in the UK. And spoiler alert, we also talk about the origins of intensive care units in Australia and in a way, the beneficial impact of vaccinations. Before we launch into the podcast, both Don and I want to express our condolences to the family and friends of Dr. Dave McConnell. Dave was an anaesthetist from Queensland and another past president of the ASA. If you would like to learn more about Dr. McConnell, then please look for his obituary in the next audition of The Australian Anaesthetist. Meanwhile, let's enjoy part one of this conversation with ASA past president, Dr. Donald Maxwell. Thanks for giving up some time with me this morning, Don. So I just want to start by asking, when did you first become a specialist anaesthetist? I'd taken my specialist degree in 1960. The head of the department then was Brian Dwyer, who was the first director of anaesthesia in Sydney, and he was quite an extraordinary guy. He was a great teacher, and he also was a great mentor for me. Having obtained my Australian fellowship, he encouraged me to go to Oxford, where he'd been, and I did that the next year in 1961 and stayed there for a couple of years, and I worked with some extraordinary teachers and some extraordinarily influential people in the world of anaesthesia. The head of the department then was Professor Sir Robert McIntosh, who was the first professor in uh, an academic department in the world, actually. And I think we all know his name because the laryngoscope blade is named after him. It is. Yes, it is. Lots of things are named after Macintosh, but he was an extraordinary guy. Uh, and uh, he became a big influence on me too. And he and I seemed to hit it off. Uh, and I'd only been in Oxford for a few weeks and he asked me whether I wanted to sit for the English Fellowship. And I told him, no, I didn't think so. I couldn't see any purpose in that. And that shocked him a bit. <laughs> he thought that I should do it. I didn't realise why initially. But that came later. It turned out that I was the first Australian to work in his department and the second in England at all with the Australian Fellowship. Ah, I see. He wanted to know how good the Australian Fellowship was, I discovered, and he made it difficult for me 
not to do the English fellowship. I, I, I said, first of all, I can't afford it. I don't have any money. She mm-hmm. said, oh, I'll lend you the money. Oh, that's kind <laughs> of him. And then I said, look, I don't have time to do it anyhow. The working here, I'm on call twice a week and up all night. He said, oh, I'll do some of your lists. Well, he never did, but the, that was good too. And I said, By the, in any case, the applications are closed for the next one. He said, don't worry, I'll fix that. Oh, wow. so, <laughs> a man of influence. <laughs> so as it turned out, I sat for the English Fellowship and I passed and they were happy with my Australian Fellowship. And I really had a very good time in Oxford after that. How long were you there for? Two years. And mm-hmm. uh, I went there for two reasons, really. First of all, Brian Dwyer encouraged me, but secondly, I wanted to test myself and find out how good an anaesthetist I was. And this was the Mm. leading institution in anaesthesia in the world at the time. So that's what I did. I went there. And the second thing was that I was particularly interested in respiratory failure work at that time. And Oxford had a respiratory unit, the, the first respiratory unit in the UK, and one of the first in the world, I think. Mm-hmm. And I worked there with a fellow called Alex Crampton-Smith, who eventually succeeded McIntosh as the head of the Oxford Department. And when you say respiratory unit, what sort of work were you doing in there? It was a respiratory failure unit. It managed patients who had polio. Polio was a big thing at that time. It was mm-hmm. before the vaccinations and the polio and people with neurological diseases And there were about 20 or 30 patients there from all over the UK. And there were people on respirators of various sorts. They didn't have mechanical respirators there at that time. It was a research department and they became interested in measurement. And measurement in anesthesia was just beginning. And this was one of the big changes that took place in anesthesia where people could measure oxygen levels and carbon dioxide levels Mm. and later anaesthetic gas levels. It was quite Mm -hmm. a place to work. I can imagine. And the other thing for me was that people visited from all over the world. So I met all sorts of people from continental Europe and from the US and from other parts of Australia even. When I think of managing patients with respiratory failure, I think of intubation and quite high-tech ventilators. What was it like in the unit at that time in Oxford? High-tech ventilators didn't exist. The first ventilators of any consequence were the tank respirators. And these were external respirators. The patient was in the respirator with a collar around his neck and he was enclosed by it. And a pump raised and lowered the pressure inside the, the ventilator and that way enabled the patient to breathe. Macintosh, not Macintosh, but uh, Nuffield was head of the big motor industry there in England, and he was a very wealthy man, and he donated these respirators to hospitals all over the Commonwealth, parts of the US too, thousands of them at a great expense. Every department in Australia had a ventilator at that stage. Are these the ones that I might have heard of as the iron lungs? Yes. Yes, they were. And an incredible advance in mechanical ventilation. They were at the time. They had their faults, lots of them, but they were a huge advance. They saved thousands, of, if not hundreds of thousands of lives throughout wow. the world. So when you came back from Oxford, you would have had incredible expertise with looking after 
polio patients with these ventilators that would have been a relatively novel technique in Australia at the time, I'm guessing. The iron lung, as you call it, had existed for some time before I went to Oxford, and they were Mm -hmm. well established in Australia before I went to Oxford. Polio wasn't my special interest, actually. When I went to England, the tetanus had become a terrible problem uh, in Australia, and tetanus is an infection. It usually occurs in infected wounds, and uh, it gradually causes paralysis through the whole Mm. body, extending up to the neck, and patients can't breathe. And quite painful too. Yes, a terrible disease. Mm. At St Vincent's, we began to manage these by paralysing the patient with curare Mm -hmm. and intubating them and managing them by hand ventilation through an anaesthetic machine. And we were getting patients referred to us from all over the place at St Vincent's in Sydney because we helped develop this particular technique. Wow. And that had aroused my interest in Australia. We managed the patients, as I said, by ventilating them by hand until their tetanus subsided when they could then breathe for themselves. Mm. And that actually was incredibly labour-intensive. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, it involved all the anaesthetic team. Most of the residents through the hospital were up all night Mm. managing these people, just squeezing them by hand for a couple of weeks so there was somebody always there. Quite a few of them didn't survive, but Mm. a good number did too. What a breakthrough. And then we moved on from that to other people with other types of respiratory failure, the people with Guillain-Barre syndrome and other types of neurological things. And that's what aroused my interest in respiratory failure. And nowadays those conditions would be managed in an intensive care unit. Yes. So were there intensive care units for these patients then? And if there was, what did they look like? The answer to that is no. The first intensive care unit also was established at St Vincent's in Sydney, again with Brian Wah and Warren Gunner, was the first director of intensive care in Sydney. The award was established. I'm just trying to think now. Now, it didn't exist before I went to Oxford. It was just after I came back, mm-hmm. and Warren Gunner had managed it, mm-hmm. and we had a small ward there of about... 10 or 12 beds, I think, where patients of this sort were managed. Wow. But it didn't exist before I went to England, though. So it sounds like you were there when we saw the birth of intensive care in Australia. Yes, yes, it was. What a fascinating time. The intensive care units, or this particular one anyhow, and I suspect others, were established with great difficulty. Mm. It meant that other beds in the hospital had to be given up for the intensive care and I remember surgeons objected like nobody's business because uh, they didn't <laughs> want to lose beds. Beds were greatly prized at that stage. Uh, and uh, it was only through force of personalities that it was established. The, <laughs> like building it, any service, really, isn't it? And many people thought it was unnecessary and uh, it was a luxury, if you like, in a time when there were beds were short everywhere. But then people began to visit from other hospitals and they were established all over the place. They didn't exist in England at the time. We were perhaps a world pioneer at that time. I think we were. I think we were. I can't really know authority on that as to whether we were first exactly in the world, but certainly one of the first. Incredible time. Mm. 
Can you paint a picture for me of what it was like in theatres at the time? I read your presidential's address and I see that you made mention of cardiac surgery, liver and renal transplants. You know, it sounded like there was some new surgical breakthroughs that were occurring. You know, what was the surgery like then? What was the anaesthetics like then? When I started as a registrar at St Vincent's, it was very highly regarded as an anaesthetic department in Australia. And some of the best anaesthetists in Australia were there. But it was really terribly primitive. Looking back, about 70, 80% of the anaesthetics given were open ether anaesthetics, drip anaesthetics. Mm-hmm. Intubation was not terribly common. In fact, I will remember just as I started the department there, one of the surgeons there was going to do a thyroidectomy. And Brian Dwyer, who was a great innovator at the time, said yes, he would be happy to give the anaesthetic and that he would intubate the patient. And the surgeon reacted like nobody's risk. He didn't want him intubating the patient at all. He wanted the patient insufflated. The anaesthetic vapours passed in the back of his mouth and breathed ether largely at that stage because they didn't use um, diathermy for those particular surgeons. Yes, because ether is so flammable, isn't it? Exactly. Anyhow, Brian Roy refused to give the anaesthetic without an endotracheal tube to protect the airway, and the mm. surgeon finally agreed very reluctantly to his doing it. <laughs> very primitive sort of stuff. I want to get a better picture of this, if that's okay. Mm. So before then, if you were doing a thyroidectomy, you would hold a mask on the patient. I forget the name, Schimmelbusch or something like that. The yeah, Schimmelbusch was a... Uh, look. One type of mask. And and so you're holding the mask and dripping ether on and no, trying I, to look, keep your I, hands... I, I, I didn't actually participate in this sort of anesthesia at all because it happened just before I started as a registrar. Uh-huh. I think what happened was that they used to what they call insufflate. They would induce the anesthetic with ether. Yes, and then carry on after that by blowing anaesthetic gases, anaesthetic vapour in the back of the mouth with an oral airway, a Goodell-type airway, and the patient breathing spontaneously, no tube. Wow, incredible. Exactly. And because you'd, you'd have limited access to the patient's airway once surgery yeah, is underway. Yeah, I know, I know. you wouldn't be able to enter the surgical oh, field. That's terribly an risky. incredible skill. Yeah, yes, incredibly risky. Yeah, that's right. Do we talk about patient safety and how much anaesthesia has contributed to it now? Do do you think in your time you've seen a a reduction in the, let's be frank, the mortality from anaesthesia? Oh, hugely. Most of the anaesthetics given were with patient breathing spontaneously, often, as I say, without endotracheal tube. This was also the time when the inhalational type anaesthetic was beginning to disappear and patients were being treated with muscle relaxants and paralysed mm-hmm. and managed in that way. They'd be given an intravenous type anaesthetic, they'd be given mm-hmm. muscle relaxants and paralysed, an intracranial tube inserted, and then mm-hmm. managed with manual squeezing of the anaesthetic bag on the anaesthetic machine, and that mm-hmm. afforded enormous safety for the patient. Yes. And how was anaesthesia maintained with that technique? With volatile? No, largely with nitrous oxide and oxygen, often without any supplements. Sometimes volatile anaesthetic were added. The consequence of that was that some patients were aware 
they didn't report that they were aware because they'd have their operation, they'd go home. Mm. Nobody would know. They didn't complain about it to the doctors who were looking after them in the hospital. They'd complained to other people probably. Mm. But we mm. as anaesthetists didn't know about it. This is not common, mind you. I'm not saying it was common. No, no But it, no. it did occur. And uh, you can the, understand with that technique if nitrous yeah, is your maintenance yeah, agent yeah. how it can occur. Yeah, yeah, well, that's right. Good. But the mortality and morbidity from anaesthetics in those early days compared to today was high. Mm. It, was, it was in the thousands. Today it's in the hundreds of thousands. Mortality I'm talking about. One in thousands versus one in hundreds of thousands. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So the anaesthetic techniques and procedures improved dramatically from those mm. early days. Yes. And it really became apparent that the advances were because people kept records, began mm-hmm. to keep good records of mm-hmm. patients and patient mortality and morbidity, and also because the committees were set up to investigate deaths under anaesthesia. So people investigated exactly. these and looked at the causes of all these things and eliminated yes. them one by one. But the other thing that happened around this time was that people were able to measure things in anaesthesia. Measurement became mm. possible of all sorts mm. of things, concentrations of anaesthetic gases, blood levels, mm-hmm. An instrument called the oximeter was introduced around this period Mm. too, which Mm. was one of the greatest advances in medicine of all time. Now you can get it on your Apple Watch. Exactly. But in those days, monitoring anesthesia was very primitive. You watched the colour of the patient. Yes. You watched their breathing. You watched their airway. And you measured their blood pressure by pumping up a a blood pressure cuff. And they were the only real ways of monitoring people. It's incredible to think about giving an anaesthetic without an oximeter. Exactly. And you would have seen it. You would have trained. Yeah, that's exactly right. The oximeter changed everything. And now we can measure Mm. all sorts of things. And the acceptance by surgeons, particularly of intubation, I mean, that lets you advance surgical techniques. Was there cardiac surgery when spont venting was the norm? The cardiac surgery was just beginning at that time. I remember we had a cardiac surgeon visit from London who brought open cardiac surgery to Australia. Mm -hmm. At St Vincent's in Sydney, we had a cardiac surgeon called Harry Windsor, who was one of the leading thoracic surgeons in Australia and later the world. Mm -hmm. Harry did a lot of pulmonary surgery. In those days, pulmonary surgery was a big thing for tumours and for infections and and so on. And he was the pioneer of thoracic surgery. In those mm-hmm. days, r- rheumatic heart disease was a common thing. Rheumatic fever was common. It's rare now because of antibiotics. Yes. Antibi- r- mm-hmm. Rheumatic fever is related to streptococcal infections, which exactly. mainly came through the tonsils. We still see a lot of it in Indigenous Australians, actually, yeah. Yes, you would, you would. But it, it's become very rare in Australia except in that Mm. community. One of the consequences of rheumatic fever is it affects the valves of the heart and they get stenosis. Yes, they get terrible valvular disease. Yes, a technique developed where you could dilate the mitral valve in the heart, open the valve, 
you had to do that through opening the chest, exposing the heart, incising the heart, putting a finger in, dilating the valve. No artificial valves at that stage. They came later. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. But Harry was a pioneer, and this surgeon from England introduced the technique. I just can't think of his name for the moment, but it doesn't matter. It was the beginning of cardiac surgery, which later on they put in artificial valves. and Well, now for cardiac surgery, they actually replace the heart by an artificial heart, external mm. heart, mm. which controls the circulation. But in those days, the heart had to keep beating. That's right. No bypass back then. And what would happen is the patient would be operated on, the heart would be incised, the procedure would take a matter mm. of a few seconds, then stitch it up. And close, and that'll be it. The operation will be over. You couldn't let it go for too long because the risk of bleeding would be significant. No, because the heart's still beating. But today they would stop the heart and replace it with a temporary and an external heart. Like. Oh, my goodness. But, uh, did you do much cardiac anesthesia in your career? I did early on, I did. But then I stopped doing that because I began to do other things and I became involved mainly with neurosurgery. I see. Yeah. Well, that's the other area where we've seen a lot more invasive surgical techniques because we're able to have more stable patients. Yes, that's right. The techniques for that have changed dramatically too. In the early days, when I first started in neurosurgical anesthesia, patients would be breathing spontaneously. Wow, we wouldn't do that now. (laughs) No, we wouldn't. And they were using an agent called trialine, which is a vapour, Patient mm-hmm. would breathe spontaneously and they would open the skull and operate on the brain and do what they had to do. There was an opposition to intubation and to controlled respiration because it was thought at that stage, mm-hmm. wrongly, but thought at that stage, that would cause, because of the positive pressure, would cause the brain to swell and it would ah. be difficult to operate. In fact, the reverse mm-hmm. was true. With yes. spontaneous respiration... The yes. patients, not infrequently... The CO2 would be high. That's right. Yes. CO2, carbon dioxide would be high and would cause the brain to swell and it would make mm. operating conditions impossible. And sometimes they'd have to close mm. the skull and give up the operation. Mm-hmm. A fellow in our Australian experience, a mm-hmm. man called McDowell, I think from Newcastle in England, popularised or developed and popularised a technique using endotracheal intubation and, and controlled respiration, paralysing the patient, mm-hmm. and it revolutionised the management of neurosurgery. I can imagine. We're still doing that technique now. I know. Mind you, yes. techniques that I'm describing, the initial one using trialine, in my experience, persisted for about the first 10 yeah. years of my experience. After that, yes. we moved on to paralysing the patients with curare-type drugs and artificial ventilation. But techniques have changed dramatically, I found. Every year they changed, and anesthesia advanced dramatically. And the consequence of that was surgery advanced dramatically because it was the advances in anesthesia that permitted the advances in surgery, and that's the case today. When did you retire from clinical anesthesia? Trying to think now. I retired when I was 70. Decided that I would retire when I was 70, not because I wanted to retire, because I loved everything that I did. I loved it. The work for me wasn't work at all. It was a joy. But I retired because I felt that at 
around that time, one's faculties would begin to deteriorate. I didn't want somebody mm. tapping me on the shoulder and saying, uh, I think you ought to think about uh, yes. giving up. Yes. So that's yeah. why I didn't. And do you think the advances in anaesthesia, do you think they were at a similar pace throughout your career or do you think that there was more rapid advancement at the start or at the end or midway through? Oh, that's hard. To, that's very hard to say. I know that my anaesthetic practice changed every year. It was different every year, not mm-hmm. only because of advances in anaesthesia, but it seemed that I would do different things. I'd come in contact with different surgeons and we would do different things. When I came back to Australia, I was on the staff of two hospitals. At St Vincent's, I did mainly more general surgery initially, a lot of inner and throat surgery, particularly ear surgery. And I did quite a bit of neurosurgery, but not as much as I did later on. Principal Wales, again, I did a lot of general surgery. And then I became involved with the development of the paediatric department there. There was a new university set up there, university Mm -hmm. hospital too. Part of that was paediatrics and nobody much had much experience in paediatric anesthesia except for me. And I didn't have a lot. While I was in England, in Oxford, I also went to Liverpool and I worked there for a little while with Cecil Gray and uh, Jackson Reese, who was a world famous paediatric surgeon. So I did get some experience in paediatric anesthesia. So I had a mixed experience in, in anaesthesia. As time went on, my neurosurgical work expanded at St Vincent's. Uh, at Prince of Wales, my work began to contract there because I was doing more at St Vincent's. I did a lot of work there in general surgical orthopaedics. I did mostly paediatrics. So I had a very varied practice. St Vincent's began to develop in various other ways. I came to be involved Mm -hmm. with the administration of the hospital and got onto the board of the private hospital in particular, which is a big hospital, Mm -hmm. and I became one of the people advising on how to establish a new private hospital in St Vincent's Clinic. And I travelled to Mm -hmm. the States and looked at clinics in the States, the Mayo and the Scripps Clinic and Cleveland Clinic and met a lot of people, came back to St Vincent's and I was on the administration side of things. I was still working. I was head of the anaesthetic department there in the private mm-hmm. hospital, which, which it became much bigger than the general hospital, actually. And today, I think the private hospital does at least as much and I think more surgical work than the private hospital. But yeah. the, I'm digressing now, aren't I? Not at all, Don, but maybe now is a good time to take a pause in our conversation. And wow, what a conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I was amazed with how humble Don is. What an inspiration. A neuroanesthetist, a paediatric anesthetist who worked with Macintosh, Cecil Gray and Jackson Reese, amongst other great names in the world of anaesthesia and surgery here and in the UK. As I mentioned at the start, this is part one of our conversation. In part two, Don and I continue to talk about his leadership roles and delve into the path that he took to becoming president of the ASA. You can expect more big names and surprising insights into the world of Australian anaesthesia. Those of you who subscribe or follow the podcast might know that I publish a new episode every fortnight. 
Well, as I mentioned, we're shaking things up a bit. And so I'm excited to announce that part two of this conversation will be published next week and not in two weeks. So you don't have to wait two weeks. It's coming out in one week's time, which means that it will happen to come out on Christmas Day. So think of it a bit like a Christmas present from me to you and perhaps something you can listen to if you just need to take a step away from whatever you're doing on Christmas Day. Until then, I hope you are staying safe and well out there and I'm also wishing you a very Merry Christmas and a safe holiday season. I hope that it's full of joy and all the things that are important to you. See you on Christmas Day. Thank you for listening to the Australian Anesthesia Podcast, which can be found on all the major podcast hosting platforms, as well as YouTube. This podcast is produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists and hosted by Dr. Susie New with music created by Dr. Mark Seuss. The ASA was formed in 1934, and our vision is for every anaesthetist in Australia to be at their best, providing the highest quality anesthesia and perioperative care through excellent technical and non-technical skills. We also hope that this means that you are functioning at your best when you're away from work. In this podcast, we have conversations that seek to inform, challenge and inspire you to keep you performing at your best. Members of the ASA can access full versions of all episodes by logging into the ASA website at asa.org.au. If you are listening on your favourite podcast app, then make sure you look at the episode notes for the direct link to the podcast on the ASA website. Also, feel free to follow or subscribe so that you can receive the latest episodes as we do publish regularly. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to email us on podcast at asa.org.au. Thank you for your time and we hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>